we will be in the book of Philippians today. Philippians chapter 4. And uh, I'll go ahead and, and read the text and we'll pray and get started. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you, God. Undeserving of this moment to, to come to your throne of grace. Father, I pray and plead that right now your word would be proclaimed faithfully and purely and boldly, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray for all of us here who are in Christ that we would be edified, that we would be built up, encouraged, and equipped. And I pray for conviction, Lord. I pray, God, that you would convict us of sin, that you would break us over our sin. And Lord, please lead us to repentance. And I pray for myself right now. I pray for strength. I pray, God, you know my weaknesses. I pray that you would be my strength now. That you, Holy Spirit, would speak through me to your people. And if there be anyone here who does not know Christ, Lord, may your word cut them, reveal to them their need of you, and lead them to a saving knowledge of him. God, be glorified, I pray. Please, be glorified in this sermon, in our worship of you. I pray Christ be exalted. And thank you so much, God, for this undeserved privilege of being up here to present your word. It is by your grace and your mercy. Lord, we ask and we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Before we get started... Um, I would like to read from the book of Ecclesiastes real quick. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 real quick. This is Solomon. <clears throat> he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this, was also, this also was a vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man. 
to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them with all kinds of fruits and trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had, who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of, con- uh, of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, delight, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and all the toil I had expended in doing. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." Here is a man who literally had everything and is purposely indulging in every aspect of pleasure that he can think of. And in the end, he says, all is vanity. As we enter to 2020, it is a time of reflection. We reflect on the past year. We look forward to the year to come. And we, we examine our shortcomings, maybe where we have, could have done better in our lives. And we make New Year's resolutions to do more, to become better. Now, please know I take no issue with anybody here wanting to get healthier, eat healthier, exercise, read more, be more organized. I have no problem with anyone here setting financial goals for themselves. That's fine. It's called being a good steward. But I want us to understand that we live in an aging culture that is consistently, constantly saturating us with discontentment. It is estimated that the average American encounters 4,000 ads per day. Now, even if that number is, is cut in half, that is still a very significant number. Every ad, commercial, marketing scheme is aimed at this one purpose, to make you discontent. Discontent with your job, discontent with your house, your car, your possessions, the way you look, your spouse. We live in an age where the word itself, contentment, is seen as a bad word, like settling. But for us who are in Christ, contentment is not only not a bad thing, but something we should be striving to become. I have to be honest with you, as I began this study, I was overwhelmed with how deep the issue of contentment is for the Christian. And we could spend a year going through the different aspects of Christian contentment. 
And I will be the first to admit you, to you that I, as I was prepping for the sermon, felt as though I bit off more than I could chew. There's so much that I wanted to say, but not wanting to feel the wrath of Phil. I wanted to keep it under an hour. <laughs> In fact, So serious this is, it is discontentment that led to the fall, is it not, in Genesis 3? This is a very serious matter and a serious sin. I hope you're ready and paying attention because I want to let you know that this sermon was one of the hardest I've had written because I myself became very convicted. And I want to uh, share some of that conviction with you all. So hopefully uh, you're ready, ready to be convicted and broken as I was over this topic. Now, as we open in the book of Philippians, and most of you are most likely familiar with this book, at least probably familiar with one verse in our text. <clears throat> and I don't want to give a, a whole backdrop of the book of Philippians, but I, you know, I do want us to note that we can read about the church plant that Paul did there in, in Acts chapter 16. And uh, we read about the Philippian jailer, right, who, who asked the great question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul is, is writing this letter now while he is in Roman imprisonment, home arrest, house arrest. And he's writing them to, to encourage them in unity, spiritual growth and detachment from this world. To encourage them because they had oppositions according to chapter 128 and were facing persecutions, uh, verses 29 and 30 of chapter 1. And they were no doubt anxious and worried. But regardless of this, this church were faithful contributors to Paul's ministry. Despite this, they were financial supporters of Paul and his companions. And Paul, desiring to encourage these Philippian believers, used their latest gift here in our text to illustrate a great and powerful lesson. A lesson that is the antidote to warring, which is a lesson of contentment. So he says here, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, first and foremost, we ask ourselves, why was Paul rejoicing in the Lord greatly? He is rejoicing because they are indeed genuinely concerned for their brother. In the midst of their opposition and persecution, they are concerned for him. And he rejoices that they are caring for him, doing exactly what he exhorts them to do in, in chapter 2. Verse 4, look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul is not rejoicing here because he has received money, but because of their partnership for the advancement of the gospel has been made manifest among them. To bring clarity, look at verses 15 here through 18. He says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. 
This is why Paul is rejoicing. Not so much that he has provisions, which you would need. Roman imprisonment was not like prison. You don't get three square meals a day in a cot to lay on. If you do not have provisions made for you, well, that's on you. He does not so much rejoice about the gift itself, but more so their maturity and heart behind the gift. He rejoices over their fruit that is increasing to their credit. And what does he mean by this? Their eternal heavenly reward. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, but, and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in... I'm sorry. I think I said, do not lay for yourself treasures in heaven. Do not lay for yourself treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It is remarkable, remarkable to me the investments that we toil in for retirement. Not that that's a bad thing. But when it comes to our eternal investment, how little attention we pay to it. And now I hate talking about money. And every pastor, well, not every pastor. Most pastors do not enjoy talking about it. But it is a necessity. When you find, uh, because it reveals where your security is. It reveals where your trust is. It reveals where your contentment is. Where you find your contentment. Where your heart is. Paul rejoices in the midst of their tribulations that they are still giving toward the advancement of the kingdom. Now, to give a little bit of the context, think about this for a moment. He's in Roman imprisonment custody, and, and, and he knows, they know that he's awaiting his appointment with Caesar, but this time is Nero. He may die. The Philippians know this. They're worried for their brother. And, and they send financial aid to him. They, they uh, send encouragement to him. And he writes this letter in response. And it just is overwhelming to me what Paul writes and overflows with the contentment in his heart. Now, think about it. If I were to write this letter to you, see if I was in imprisonment in Saudi Arabia or wherever, my letter would probably be reading to you guys. Thank you so much for the financial support. I was starving. Thank you for, for everything. Please pray that I get out of here. Uh, please pray that I get to come home with my family and, and be at rest. <coughs> That's not Paul. As we see in chapter 1, he says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel that has become known throughout the imperial guard and to all the rest of the imprisonment, uh, that, to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of their brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold and speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
He goes on to say, What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice. Paul is chained to a Roman guard, and he sees this as an opportunity to preach Christ and preach Christ to the next guard that takes shift. Paul even rejoices that his imprisonment has emboldened other believers. Paul even rejoices that his imprisonment has made an opportunity for his opponents to say, look, God's put him on the shelf. God has punished him, but they're going out and becoming more bold to preach Christ. Even though it's from selfish gain, Paul is still rejoices, but at the very least, Christ is proclaimed. Paul cares not that his name is being slandered, so as long as Christ is being proclaimed. Paul's life was about the proclamation of the gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Because of this, he sees every circumstance that he is in as an opportunity for the gospel. And in so doing, is completely satisfied and content in that. If our lives are about the gospel, we will see every situation, we will see every circumstance as an opportunity for the proclamation of the gospel. And if our lives are about that, we can rejoice. Now we could stop right there. We could stop right there and ponder that truth. For it is enough in and of itself to convict us, is it not? But there's more. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul desires to let the Philippians know that while he appreciates their gift, it does not add to his joy or contentment. Nor will it take away after it is gone and spent. He says, I have learned that whatever situation I am in, to be content. His contentment is not contingent upon his circumstances. We should make note of that. True contentment is not contingent upon our circumstances. It does not waver. And how often do we say, if I can only get this done today, if I can accomplish this or obtain that, I'll be happy. I'll be content. And I understand what we're saying. I say it all the time. I became really convicted. <clears throat> if I can only get the garage cleaned out today, I'll be happy. We see these words, I am to be. This was not a, a good suggestion or advice that Paul uh, was taking, but a command to be lived out. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from love and money and be content with what you have. Puritan pastor Jeremiah Baroff states, To be well skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory, and excellence of every Christian. End quote. It is a command. 
Christian contentment is a command and our duty to be lived out. Now, please do not mistake contentment with passiveness or laziness. We are not teaching fatalism here, nor was Paul. Christian contentment does not mean that we do not oppose injustices and evils in this life. It does not mean that we are not to attempt to improve our situations. It does not mean that we must become stoic, nor does it overlook the fact that we may have needs and desires. There is nothing wrong with someone desiring a godly spouse. There is nothing wrong with someone desiring a better job to improve the ability to provide for their family. There's nothing wrong with someone wanting a more reliable vehicle so it doesn't break down on the grapevine. Aaron and Trish. Um, There's nothing wrong with these things. Paul addresses this very thing in in the previous verse. Verse 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The difference is that whatever the outcome is, our contentment is intact and still unwavering. Our contentment is not contingent upon our circumstances. We see in this verse that Christian contentment is not only a command, but a thing to be learned. We also see that it can be learned. We may practice the discipline of prayer, memorization, giving, scripture reading. But how many of us can say that we practice the discipline of contentment? From this verse, we can see that it is not something that comes automatically. It is not something that comes automatic the moment of conversion. Nor is it something that we can choose to be. It is not a facade that we put on or an act or a New Year's resolution. Christian, true Christian contentment is a synergistic discipline in which we must condition ourselves to daily. Paul was himself taught. Let us consider his credentials for a moment. Uh, Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. And we'll look at verses 23. Starting in verse 23, says, Far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardships through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Quite the uh, school of contentment. Take inventory of your life. And after reading those credentials there, it brings, should bring about a level of conviction. If Paul could be content 
I think we can too. God may bring about situations that will be opportunities for you to practice contentment, to learn contentment. And believe it or not, it may be through loss and hardships that we find that we can be content. The simple Greek translation for this word content is self-sufficient. This is not to say that Paul was reliant upon himself, but speaking more so of learning to live a life free from dependency on anything or anyone else other than God. This is going back to what I said earlier. Contentment is not contingent upon our circumstances or even others. The Lord, through these circumstances, taught Paul how to be content. This brings about another point I would like to make. Our contentment reveals our trust in God's providence and sovereign will. Do we not all affirm that God is absolutely sovereign? Do we not also affirm that He is good? Do we not all believe Romans 8.28 that those who love God and all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose? If that then be the case, is it not God that is sovereign over your circumstances? And when you feel discontent with the way things are going, who is it that you are discontent with? This is why discontentment is so very dangerously sinful. It is why Paul exhorts at Philippians earlier in chapter 2, verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Reminds me of the story of Job, who went through so much. And though he did not sin, when he finally gets to the point when he demands an answer from God for his circumstances, God replies, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determines this measurement? Surely you know. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? When we complain, question, or become discontent with our circumstances as believers, we complain against, question, and become discontent with God. Job realized that and said, I am of small account, and what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Complaining is the opposite of contentment. Yet how much is it a default of ours? Look back in this last year. Look back yesterday. How often do we complain? And let me ask you, How often do we complain over such trivial things? My son, Cohen, is, he's a good boy, but like any other five-year-old, he likes his toys. And I wasn't there, but Lily took him to the movies the other day, and he wanted a toy out of them, claw machine, which are impossible because the claw doesn't close, it gets up top. 
and it's just a ripoff. But she was unable to win him the toy, and, and he walked away, throwing a fit, of course, screaming, I never get toys. And if anyone's been to my house knows that he's got a plethora of toys. And though if, even if he won it, he'd probably play with it for like a day, and then you throw it off to the side. Forget about it. And how often I think I must sound like that to God. Things never go my way. Of course there's traffic today. Of course I got to get behind this one idiot. <laughs> Woe is me. We laugh, but complaining is the opposite of contentment and reveals a discontent heart. Again, I quote the Puritan Jeremiah Baroff, says, Christian contentment is finding delight in God's wise plan for my life and humbly allowing him to direct it, end quote. Christian contentment is humbly submitting to the providence and will of a sovereign God. That is what will stand out in this dark and discontent world. <coughs> Let me give you two different examples. We recently had a leader of a big church here in our community who uh, suffered a stroke, heart attack, I'm, I'm not sure, both. And he was literally on his deathbed. It was very touch and go for a while and um, needed to be resuscitated. And uh, the church prayed for him and, and a lot of people were praying for him, for his survival, and he came out of it and is on the road to full recovery. But in the interview with this leader of this big church, not once was God giving glory. Not one ounce of his healing was contributed to Almighty God and his grace. It was contributed to the people and the power of their prayers. And in one disturbing point in the interview, the interviewer said, we refused to pray God's will be done. We refused to pray God's will be done. And they found and see their power in his healing. Let me give you another example. About five years ago or so, right before Aaron and Trish were about to leave for a seminary down south, Austin had scraped his knee and uh, got a bacteria in there that developed a, a very rare infection. So rare that the doctors wanted to document it into their medical records because they had very few cases in which they could re reference to. <clears throat> um, but while they were trying to figure out what it was that Austin had, um, things became serious. It became very touch and go. <coughs> and I think it, it was close to about a week or so since when he was submitted 
uh, admitted to the hospital that things really took a turn for the worse. And, and they were coming to the realization that they may lose their son. And I remember Trish posting her prayer on Facebook, and it just was heart-wrenching for any parent to read, uh, just pleading with God not to take her baby boy. Even think about it, um, brings tears to my eyes as a parent. I can only imagine. And Aaron told me that when things got really bad, he got back to his hotel, and something came over him where he bowed his head in prayer. And he said, Lord, he is not ours. And if it be your will, take him. Little did he know his wife was praying the exact same thing. May your will be done. And it will be well. Praise God that God healed Austin, and he's doing okay. Of the two stories of healing, which one stands out as giving God glory? And even though we praise God and we look at the healing of Austin, is it not the moment where his parents submit to the sovereign will of God and say, Lord, may your will be done? That is the power of Christian contentment. <clears throat> and though we marvel at this, like I said, we marvel at the mercy of God and, and the healing, it is a marvelous thing when a Christian can humbly submit to God's will and say, may your will be done, even in the midst of losing their own child. This is the power of Christian contentment. And the more we understand God's providence, the easier it will be for us to grasp Christian contentment. I'll say that again. The more we understand God's providence, the easier it will be for us to grasp Christian contentment. Paul goes on to say, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. We often look at, at Paul's struggles and, and, and his trials and tribulations, but there were definitely times in which he experienced comfort. Not many, but there were times you think about Acts 28 when uh, he was shipwrecked and, 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 and drift, adrift at sea and lands on the island of Malta. The uh, chief there, uh, Publius, um, grants him great hospitality. And no doubt Lydia in Philippi, who was a, a seller in, in uh, purple, which was purple linens, which was a lavish uh, wealth. Uh, trade provided hospitality for he and his companions and Paul said 
that I knew how to be content even when I was in comfort, even in times of plenty. And we often automatically go to how to be content when things are tough, how to be content when things are, are falling apart, when things get hard. But it's interesting here that Paul says, I knew how to be content in abundance. Spurgeon says, it is a harder lesson to learn to be full than to be hungry. So desperate is a tendency of human nature to pride and forgetness or forgetfulness of God, end quote. And we quickly glance over this because we think that we are not rich. And I think that that mindset just shows how much that this applies to us. But Christians have never been more wealthier in any time of history than they are now, especially here in the United States. And wealth can make us arrogant, prideful. It can make us dependent upon it. And it can make us hunger for more of it. I think of Alexander the Great, who after pretty much conquering the known world, was distraught because he had no more kingdoms to conquer. Or John Rockefeller, who controlled 90% of the oil industry in America, making him the richest man in America at the time. When asked, how much is enough? He replied, just a little bit more. This is the wrong way of handling abundance. This is discontentment even in prosperity. For the, for the content Christian, they see their abundance as means of furthering the gospel. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 17-18, As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good works, to be generous, and ready to share. This is the correct way to be content in abundance, to abound. Paul was the same when he had plenty or when he had nothing. Yet how much does our demeanor, attitude, and temperament change when things do not go our way? When we get that unexpected bill in the mail, our hearts drop and all hope seems to fade away. When gas prices go up or our candidate doesn't get in office. Why? Because we're finding our contentment in our possessions, bank account, circumstances. Look at the things in which you find yourself to be most discontent with, complaining most about, and there you will see where you place your hope and satisfaction. Paul could face need and hunger with complete contentment. Why? Because he understood and practiced what our Lord taught in Matthew 6. Be not anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Christian contentment reveals our trust in the Lord. 
and also reveals that our security is not in the things of this life. These are the times in which we glorify God the most. Let me tell you something here. Anyone can be content when they are in plenty. The joy you display in times of plenty will hardly seem supernatural to an unbeliever. But if we can learn to be content when everything is seemingly falling apart, in the midst of trials, in the midst of loss, in the midst of suffering, what a testament that will be to an unbelieving world. Paul says he has learned the secret of contentment. And what is that secret? Let us look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now here we have probably one of the most misused Bible verses. Um, it is a, no doubt, a verse on coffee cups and t-shirts. We see it written all over the place. And I'm sorry if this is your life verse. I hate to burst your bubble, but this verse is commonly used for the exact opposite of its original intent. This verse is not the recipe to accomplishing your dreams. This verse is not the recipe in order to obtain what you desire. And leave it to us to take a verse about contentment and make it about obtaining. Now, I'm not going to tell you what to highlight in your Bible, but if you have Philippians 4, 13 highlighted in your Bible, I would encourage you to make sure you connect verse 12 as well. So then, what is the secret of Paul's contentment? What is it that strengthens Paul in times of want? What is it that sustains him in times of plenty? And he finds his satisfaction in Christ. Paul found his contentment in all circumstances in Christ. And he found his strength in it. And many of you in this room can attest to that. Going through trials, going through loss, going through hardships. Can you imagine facing the things that you have gone through without Christ? Did Christ physically strengthen Paul? Sure, absolutely. Did he give him strength to endure? Yes. But take a look at 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. <clears throat> Paul says there, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, about this thorn that he had. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was something that tormented him. In order to keep him humble, and three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. 
Paul learned that whatever situation he may be in, Christ's grace was sufficient for him. This is what Christian contentment brings about. Our reliance upon and realization that his grace is sufficient. What does that mean, that word sufficient? It means that it's all we need. It is sufficient. A grace that we take for granted, a grace that we do not deserve. If there is one thing that Paul knew himself to be, it is this, a sinner. He says in, in Romans 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that my fl- that is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability. Verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ our Lord. In 1 Timothy 1, 12-15, I know this is a little bit lengthy, but it, it, it perfectly encompasses what I'm talking about. I thank him who, was given, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. Though formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am foremost. There's one thing that Paul knew about himself is that he was a sinner saved by grace. Paul understood what he was deserving of. He understood what I and all of us, I believe, so often neglect to remember, to cherish. And that is this. We deserve hell. We deserve the wrath of God for eternity. You see, discontentment comes when my circumstances do not reflect the prideful value and importance that I have placed upon myself. Discontentment comes when my circumstances do not reflect the prideful value and importance that I have placed upon myself. But when we consider who we really are, apart from Christ, what we really deserve, that destroys that pride. Our salvation, Christian contentment, begins with humility. And it is sustained with gratefulness. If you look at Paul's epistles, how many times He opens with thankfulness, and throughout the epistles, he is constantly grateful. Grateful for the ministry, grateful for the persecution, grateful for the people that God has placed in his life. This puts an end to our pride and allows us to be perfectly content in whatever situation we're in. Not only content, but thankful, as Paul is. Paul could be content because he recognizes the surpassing worth of Christ 
in comparison with everything else. Earlier in this same epistle, he writes in chapter 3, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count it as rubbish, garbage, in order that I may gain Christ. If there was one that could relate this to us, it was Paul. He was to be a Pharisee of Pharisees, a teacher of teachers, and hold a place of authority and honor and respect amongst the Jews but treated it all in for slander, beatings, stonings, poverty, imprisonment, and ultimately death. But he willingly and joyfully submitted to this, stating in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul had learned to be content because he had learned that he had everything he could ever want or need in Christ. And that in all things we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. Does that define us today, O Christian? Does our attitude reflect that? True Christian contentment is found in Christ and in Him alone. C.S. Lewis once said, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. End quote. This is the secret of contentment in which Paul drew his strength from. It was realizing what he had and who he was in Christ. This is what compelled him to live the life that he lived and have the impactful ministry that he had. The implications of this truth are powerfully freeing, are they not? Charles Wendell once said, when money is our objective for happiness, we must live in fear of losing it which makes us paranoid and suspicious. When fame is our aim, we become competitive, lest others upstage us, which makes us envious. When power and influence drive us, we become self-serving and strong-willed, which makes us arrogant. And when possessions become our God, we become materialistic, thinking enough is never enough, which makes us greedy. All these pursuits fly in the face of contentment and joy. End quote. This is the beautiful thing about contentment that we have and can have in Christ. We, like Paul, can be content in plenty, knowing that it adds nothing to us. And we can be content in nothing, knowing that it takes nothing from us. This is what Christian contentment brings about. A freedom of overindulgences and want, as well as a freedom from legalistic asceticism. In closing, I want us to examine ourselves. To the unbeliever that may be here today, I 
I quote the words of Augustine. It says, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. Like Solomon, all ventures to find satisfaction and contentment in this life will be in vain until you look unto Christ. It is only in Him that your soul will find true contentment and rest. And for those of us in Christ, I ask that you examine yourself. Examine where as I have done and found my shortcomings, my complaints, my discontentments, and in the scope of my Christian, Christian salvation, how <coughs> trivial those things are. If you find yourself discontent today, if you find yourself discontent tomorrow, Follow the example of the Apostle Paul and look unto our author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Look unto his perfect life lived and his atoning sacrifice made, which makes us adopted sons and daughters of God, Galatians 4, 5, and grants us everlasting inheritance, Colossians 1, 12. Look unto his resurrection that grants us assurance that death has been defeated on our behalf, 1 Corinthians 15, 55. And we who were once spiritually dead are now alive, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Look unto his glorious ascension to the right hand of the Father and know that we who were once enemies can draw near to his throne of grace and receive mercy, grace, and help in times of need, Hebrews 4, 16. A convicting question I leave for you this morning. With all this in mind, has Christ crucified, buried, resurrected on your behalf enough to make you content today? Or must he do more? In Christ, we have more than we could ever hope for in this life. And it, he far exceeds that which we deserve.